as I said in the first message, we'll talk about truths about who God has revealed himself to be. And God reveals himself not so that you can know about him. He wants you to know him. And this is what I want for you as well. We started by considering the glory of knowing God, the joy that it is to even be able to know him. This is eternal life, to know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Knowing God is to know he is unified in all his attributes. He is not one or the other. He is not made up of individual attributes. He is unlike us. He is infinite. He is self-existent. To know God is to know that he is good. He is all good all the time. He is only good and he can only be good. We want to grow in knowing God and his holiness, to worship him as the angels worship him, as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. We want to increasingly be holy, for he is holy. And this morning in our text, God tells us about his providence. Providence. It's more about how God works, and technically it's not an attribute. But God reveals who he is through his works, his providential works. And I want us to grow in knowing God, and so this morning we're going to grow in knowing God through looking at how he works. And the text for this morning is the last verse that Rod read, Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so in this one verse, in this text, the main point is really the verse, God is the source, the means, and the destination of all things, so give him glory. And this is providence, divine providence. And so the first point that I want to consider this morning, God is the source of all things, so give him glory. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything has a beginning. The heavens, the earth, you, me, everything created has a beginning. And we see that in this verse. From him are all things. What existed before the creation of the heavens and the earth? God, the Father, and the Son. And the Spirit, part of the verses that we just were singing together, the three in one existed since eternity past. God has no beginning. An attribute we've already talked about, He is eternal. He has always existed. He did not come into being. There was no beginning for God. 
there was a beginning for the heavens and the earth. And the heavenly beings, angels, and all earthly beings, us. God is the creator. He created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in the heavens and the earth, both visible and invisible. Nothing will exist outside of his creative hand. Nothing can exist outside of his creative hand. Every child that is formed in the womb of a woman does so only by God's hand. I love the movie at the Creation Museum. For those of you who have been to the museum, maybe you've seen that movie. It it, it starts in Cincinnati and it starts to pan out through our solar system. And, and then it looks at the Milky Way galaxy and it continues to pan out looking at all of the galaxies. This uh, incomprehensible expanse of the heavens. Galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. Some billions of galaxies. And And I'm overwhelmed at the mighty power of God who created all of this by his word. From nothing. God is the creator. He has authority over his creation. Kids intuitively understand this concept. That creators have authority over their creation. Calvin will ask me to build a little garage with him out of Lincoln Logs. Sometimes he drives cars into the garage... Sometimes he builds up the garage taller. And sometimes he tears down the garage. Of course, the Lincoln Lawn Garage is inanimate, so there's no way it can have authority over its maker. And you and I are living beings. Yet, there is no way that we can have authority over our maker. We have as much authority to determine on our own what is right and wrong as that Lincoln Law garage. We have no authority in ourselves to declare, I think this is okay or I think this will be allowable. Our Creator has not given us the authority to declare what is good and righteous. He alone has this authority. Because he's the mighty creator of all things. The implication that God is the source of all things is this. He has authority over all things. So give him glory. This truth should grow a fear of God in us, in awe, a reverence, a desire to embrace Him, a worshipful desire to give Him glory. 
And so in the first part of this verse, God is the source of all things, so give him glory. Second, God is the means of all things, so give him glory. This is where I'm going to spend the majority of my time this morning. God is the means of all things. This is the way that God works his providence and the extent of his providence. And I want to talk about three aspects. What portion of your life is God sovereign over? How far does God's providence extend over your life? Through him are all things. The first aspect that I'd like to consider, God preserves. God upholds all things. God preserves all of his creation. His creation, you and I, cannot exist for one moment apart from him. This is true for believers. This is true for unbelievers. He sustains all life. And he tells us this throughout the scriptures. Just a couple of examples. Psalm 36, verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Yahweh, you preserve man and beast. Paul in Colossians 1.17, speaking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is before all things. And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, also speaks of Jesus when he writes, And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And he, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. The Puritan pastor Edward Corbett wrote in 1658, and he said, Every creature depends on God. The universe is not like a house that continues to stand after after the carpenter finishes his work and leaves. It rather is like daylight that ceases after the sun goes down. Both our being and our actions depend on God for their existence. There is nothing which he has made with his good hand of providence that he does not govern and sustain. Did you hear the attribute that he mentioned at the end? There is nothing which God has made with his good hand of providence. God's goodness. He is always good. He can only do good. We're dependent on God for creation of life. We're dependent on God to sustain life. We are dependent on God to govern life. He's the very means of our existence. He's the way we exist. He governs the way we exist. No aspect of our life is apart from Him. God is sovereign over your creation. God is sovereign over sustaining your life. God is sovereign over governing your life. God is the means of all things. 
And the second aspect I'd like to consider, God inclines hearts, he affects the desires of hearts. God inclines hearts, he affects the desires of hearts. Some believe God never determines the will of man to a particular choice because the will of man is absolutely free, independent, and uncontrollable. John Owen wrote against this thinking and affirmed both the will of man and the providential sovereignty of God to incline and stir the will of man in respect to God's eternal decrees. Owen rightly argued that the Bible teaches four things about God's providence and our hearts. First, God's providence rules the plans and most secret resolutions of men. We see this in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of nations. He frustrates the plans of peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. There's numerous other examples that I could offer throughout scripture. God's providence rules the plans and most secret resolutions of men. Second, God's providence turns men's hearts whichever ways he pleases. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord turns it whichever way he wishes. The Lord turns the heart of the king whichever way he wishes to turn it. Third, God's saints pray for him to move their hearts and to bend their wills. God's saints pray. We pray that he would move our hearts and bend our wills to be in accord with his will and not our own. Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart, O Lord, to your testimonies. Change my heart. Transform my heart. Cause my heart. You please work in my heart and cause my heart to want to want what you desire. God's saints pray to him to move within our heart and to bend our will just as he promised. Jeremiah 32, 40. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. The fourth thing that John Owen argued that the Bible teaches about God's providence in our hearts is this. The certainty of God's promises depends on his determining and turning the will of men as he pleases. God's promises are certain. They will happen. And he causes, he turns the will of man as he pleases to bend to his will. 
in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to Jesus, You do not speak to me? Do you not know? I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. God's promises are certain. And they are certain because his means are to turn the will of men as he pleases. So how does God's providence relate to our efforts? God works through, he uses means. He uses people, he uses circumstances. We are not to sit idle, but we are to take action in the ways of God. In Genesis chapter 42, the narrative where Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. So his son Joseph goes down to Egypt, and we know from the end of the chapter that this was God's will for this to happen. Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. There was a great famine in Israel. They had no food. He saw that there was grain in Egypt, and he said this to his sons. He said, there's grain in Egypt. Why are you staring at one another? Go get the grain. The Puritan, Obadiah Sedgwick, wrote this. If we desire to experience the good providence of God, we must be diligent in our callings. Hear this. This is what Sedgwick wrote. God blesses diligence and curses laziness. God blesses diligence and curses laziness. Since God is righteous, we always must use righteous means. This is what Sedgwick wrote. God calls every one of us to take action. This is exactly what Jacob was saying to his sons. It was God's providence to provide grain. They needed to take action. God is a God of means. He works through people. He works through you. You are called to take action. Righteous action. But we can fall into pride or presumption. The Puritan Charnock warned that pride uses means without seeking God. Pride uses means without seeking God. Pride takes action without seeking God. And presumption depends on God while neglecting the means that God provides. Presumption depends on God but does not take action. Don't think that you can do anything on your own without seeking God. Don't be lazy and idle in what God calls you to do. Seek God and take action. 
Is there an area in your life you are taking action but not seeking God? Is there an area in your life where you know what God wants you to do but you are not doing it? You're not doing what He wants you to do. Seek God and take action. If you're seeking God in His Word, praying and fasting, confessing sin, if you're doing this, trust that He will shape the desires of your heart to His will. You can trust Him to do this. But I must give a warning. I can't tell you the number of times, including recently, a person has said to me, I know this is what God wants me to do. I know this is what God wants for me. And I ask, where do you see this in his word? Because what they have just told me is contrary to God's revealed will in his word. If you are seeking God in his word, if you are praying and fasting, if you are examining your heart for sin and confessing it and repenting, turning from it to put on righteousness, then you can trust that he will shape the desires of your heart to his will. How God works through means, how God works through you and me in each other's lives to affect the desires of the heart, this is a mystery. The Puritan John Flavel wrote a whole book on this, The Mystery of Providence, and it's an exposition of one verse from Scripture. Psalm 57, verse 2. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Flavel's premise in his book on this verse was was this. God fulfills his purposes for his people, even though our understanding of divine providence is imperfect and partial. God fulfills his purpose for you and I, for his people, for those of us who have professed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are adopted sons of God. God fulfills his purposes in our lives, even though our understanding of what he's accomplishing is imperfect, even though it's partial. We're like Peter in John thirteen seven. Jesus answered Peter and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand it hereafter. I think we all see this in our lives. There's times that we can look back. And uh, I, I heard a, a pastor talk about this recently. He said, providence is like the rearview mirror. There's so many times that we only understand it as we're looking at what has already occurred. And yet there's also aspects of God's providence in my life that I don't think I'm going to understand until I see him face to face. And even then I may not understand it. I see God's providence and your action. And I see this all over in our church family. God's providence and your action. 
God burdens your heart to pray for someone. And you do. Their salvation, their family, hard circumstances. We see this in our prayer sheet weekly. We see this in Sunday school when I'm talking with you and you're sharing with me how God has burdened your heart and you're praying and you're asking me or you're encouraging each other to be praying for people. God burdens your heart to help others within our church family and outside of the church. He burdens your heart to do this and you do. Meals. Moving, groceries, benevolence, visiting folks, cards, prayer, serving. And again, inside the church family and also outside. God burdens your hearts. And as he burdens your heart, you take action. And you worship him through your action. I see God's providence in your action in conversations that I've had with folks, whether it's in person, on the phone, in my office, in the community. And I'm thinking of some specific examples that have been in the midst of hard providence and in the midst of the hard circumstances that the individual is going through, talking about the sin in their heart, and they're confessing their sin. As God burdened their heart about the sin in their own heart, they take action and confess it. We see examples in scriptures, Exodus chapter 12. The sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. How did God work in the hearts of the Egyptians? I don't know. That's a mystery. What is not a mystery is that God works in hearts. He alone turns hearts. He alone has the authority and the power to work in a person's heart. We can encourage, but we do not have the authority or the power. He alone works in people's hearts. That's not a mystery. It is also not a mystery That man must take action. The Israelites heard the word. And they obeyed the word. They took action. God will shape your heart. Predominantly through his word. And you must take action. God is the means of all things. Through him are all things. God preserves. God inclines hearts. He affects the desires of hearts. So he preserves. He inclines hearts. And the third aspect that I want to talk about this morning, God ordains suffering. One theologian writes, 
Sorrows create a grave dilemma for the Christian. For he does not want to deny either the sovereignty or the goodness of God. Two of God's attributes. The sovereignty and the goodness of God. So to preserve God's sovereignty and his goodness. To preserve God's sovereignty and his goodness. Some say suffering must not be God's will. As a way of preserving his sovereignty and his goodness, some say suffering must not be God's will. Is this true? One of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, offered this illustration. Suppose you're in a blacksmith's shop. And there you see several sorts of tools Some crooked, some bowed, others hooked. Would you condemn all these tools for naught because you do not think they look handsome? Because you don't like the look of the tools? This blacksmith makes use of all of them for doing his work. Thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to us to be very crooked, yet they all carry God's work. They all carry on. God's work. Ecclesiastes 7.13 Consider the work of God. We cannot straighten what he has made crooked. Another Puritan, Thomas Boston, wrote of God ordaining our suffering. He said, whatever is crooked in life was made so by God and therefore must be received in submission to God. There is not anything whatsoever that befalls us without his overruling hand. God makes the blind, the poor, the barren, and the deaf. We cannot straighten what he has made crooked. And he also referenced Ecclesiastes 7.13. This is not easy. Hard suffering hurts. We want to know in suffering, what is your will, God? But we must be careful because the real question can turn into what is your will in the duration of my suffering? When will it end? In painful providences, let us respond by worshiping God like Job. When Job suffered terrible losses of family and property, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What has the Lord taken away or not given to you in your life? Health? job, a spouse, a close friend, peace, harmony in your home, comfort. Let us walk alongside each other 
as a church family who cares for each other and loves each other, encouraging one another to worship God as our sovereign Lord over both the prosperous results of our labor and the painful troubles that are brought by others or circumstances or Satan's forces. All of it is from God's hand. A theologian quoted the Puritan Joseph Carl when he wrote, Carl put these words into Job's mouth. So the prayer of Job, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord from Job 121. Carl put these words into Job's mouth in that prayer as a model for all believers who suffer with proper love, fear, dependence, and trust towards an afflicting God. When Job worshipped God, he is saying, Lord, though all this has come upon me, yet I will not depart from you. I know you are still the same Jehovah, true, holy, gracious, faithful, all-sufficient, and therefore hold me prostrate before you. Resolve my heart to love you, to fear you, to trust you. You are my God and my portion forever. Though I had nothing left in the world that I could call my own, yet you alone, Lord, are enough. You alone are all. When the Lord takes away, it is so that we may know more deeply that He is enough. He is all. Thomas Boston said, God has straight purposes for crooked providences. And he listed seven purposes that God has in crooked providences. Now you're going to notice, I'm going to read these. You're going to notice that every one of the seven has to do with our sanctification. So Boston is saying, Thomas Boston, the Puritan Thomas Boston is saying, God's straight purposes in crooked providences, the hard things of life which are crooked, God has a straight purpose in every one of them. And it's our sanctification. First, to prove your spiritual state as a hypocrite or genuine believer. Puritans were pretty straight forward, weren't they? To stir you to obedience. Wean you from this world and set your eyes on heaven. To convict you of sin. To correct or punish you for sin. To prevent you from committing sin. To reveal latent sin deep within your heart. That sin that we must dig and dig and dig to see those deep idols of my heart, my besetting sins that are deep within my heart. And lastly, 
God's straight purpose for crooked providences that Boston cited to awaken you from laziness. To awaken you from spiritual laziness so that you exercise yourself in grace or the means of grace. To awaken you from spiritual laziness so you exercise yourself in the means of grace. To those of you who are right now in the midst of suffering or that suffering that will come, I just want to be clear. We we don't want to be looking around the corner like waiting for the other shoe to drop. That is not how God wants us to live. But yet, we want to be prepared. How should I respond? How am I to respond, Lord, when suffering does come? Please do not label yourself a helpless or hopeless victim. Or sink into self-pity. Please do not miss what God desires when he ordained your suffering. His greatest desire for you. Your sanctification. God ordaining suffering should be an encouragement to you. Yes, you heard me right. God ordaining your suffering should be an encouragement. Because your suffering is not happening apart from God. He is sovereign over it. And this should be an encouragement to you. And this is why I want you to grow in knowing God. Because it's all under His sovereign control. The one who is good. The one who is merciful. The one who is gracious. The one who is holy. The one who loves you. It's all under his control. All under his sovereign control. And that should be an encouragement to us. We'll not often understand the why of our suffering. But let us not forget the purpose. That our heart is progressively transformed to worship. That we would sing, you, Lord, are enough. You are my all. God is the source of all things. God is the means of all things. God is the destination of all things. So give him glory. To him are all things. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul wrote, According to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. That we would be to the praise of his glory. I like what another Puritan Thomas Goodwin in his commentary in Ephesians on this text, on Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, in his commentary, Goodwin wrote, Ultimately, this is God's will, for God did, make, did not make choices by selecting the best available option, as if he depended on anything. Rather, all is attributed to his will, and God's counsel formulated how to do it the best way. God's highest goal, 
God's highest goal is not just that we speak or sing his praise. God's highest goal is not just that we speak or sing his praise, but that we exist for the praise of his glory. Your being, all you are and have, should be to his glory. We exist for the praise of his glory. He is our all. All that we desire. All that we worship, all of our focus is Him. This is why we exist. He's the providential source of everything. He providentially preserves. He providentially inclines hearts. He providentially ordains everything to Himself. For his glory. God saves us from ourselves to himself for his glory. Jesus' death was a propitiation, a satisfaction of the wrath of Almighty God who controls everything in the universe. He saves us from his wrath providentially and gives us his favor providentially so that we can know him and walk with him and that our life is a life of praise of his glory. And this is why I want you to know him. Not just so you can know about him. But as you see the goodness and the greatness and the beauty and the love and the glory and the power and the might of God. That it will cause you to grow in a fear of God. It will cause you to have an awe and a reverence and a desire to embrace God. So that your life will be a sweet song of praise to his glory. Will you rest in God's providence? Will you submit willingly to his providence? Will you worship God in his providence? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that you are true, you are holy, you are gracious, you are faithful, you are all sufficient. Father, may this knowledge, may our understanding, Father, may your spirit cause our hearts to fall before you in worship. Father, may your spirit cause our hearts to grow in love for you. Father, may your spirit cause our hearts to fear you more in awe, in reverence, and embrace. 
And Father, may your spirit cause our hearts to trust you in times of prosperity that we would not trust in the prosperous blessings of life and in the time of suffering that we would not doubt you that we would not look away from you that we would not be discouraged in your providence but we would be looking to your straight purposes in crooked providences that we would be looking to worship you to grow in Christ likeness to be sanctified so that our hearts shout that you are our God you alone are enough you alone are all would you cause this within our hearts in this church family and in this community for your glory